Let's uh, pray together. Father, um, even though we are apart, we belong to you in one spirit. We are part of one body. And uh, I ask that you would use your word to minister to your people wherever they may be sitting right now and they would be built up and edified and strengthened by Jesus' priesthood and it would give them further reason and further confidence to persevere to the end. In Christ's name, amen. Well, grab a Bible and uh, let's go to Hebrews chapter 7 together. Hebrews chapter 7. In talking with uh, a number of you lately, I've learned uh, of various needs you you face. Uh, Some of you need more grace to endure these very uncertain times. Um, going on week seven, the social distancing restrictions are driving you crazy. Um, some of you need help being patient with family members where relational strains uh, exist. A few of you uh, feel like you're in a, a very fragile place right now. And on a regular basis, you wrestle with doubts uh, and assurance, you know, with, with whether God still accepts you. Others of you have grown bored with God, and, and, you're, and you're very frightened by that, and, and rightly so, uh, but you need a, a, renewed, a renewed sense of, of His majesty and, and beauty and, and greatness. Still others, you know, they simply need hope to keep, keep on keeping on in the face of loss and pain and, and weariness. We're all facing various kinds of needs, various trials. This word from Hebrews 7, uh, the word inspired by the Spirit centuries ago, that word addresses all of you right where you're at. It is living and active in, in, in this word from, from Hebrews 7 you will find grace to help in time of need. You will find grace for uncertain times. You you will find assurance to draw near to God with with confidence. You, You will see the majesty of God's reign in Jesus Christ. You also will renew your hope in the promise of Jesus' priesthood. So as I preach... This message, I I hope you sense through this word, through this written word here, the Father's immediate care for you. He speaks to you here in the Bible for your encouragement. So listen very carefully to this amazing word, Hebrews 7, starting in verse 20. And it was not without an oath. For those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, 
the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office, but he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, Since he did this once for all when he offered up himself for the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath which came later than the law appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. I wonder if you noticed uh, a, a, a repeated contrast here. Notice how he switches between the the plural priests and and, and the the one, the singular priest, Jesus Christ. Verse 20 speaks of those who formerly became priests. And then verse 21, but this one was made. Verse 23, the former priests were many, again in the plural. Verse 24, but he holds his priesthood in the singular. Verse 28, the law appoints men in the plural again, and that stands in contrast to the oath appointing a son in the singular. He cannot stress enough the uniqueness of Jesus' priesthood in contrast to all others. His goal is to magnify the singular, unique greatness of Jesus' priesthood and for good reason. We have some Jewish Christians here. In, in this, this is who the letter is written to. Some Jewish Christians are wavering in their commitment to Jesus. And their old ways in Judaism uh, are starting to look pretty attractive again. Well, in response, Hebrews reassures the Christians that while the old priestly order served a great purpose, it was only a temporary one. It always anticipated a greater priesthood that would replace it. And that greater priesthood, he is arguing, belongs to Jesus Christ. But how can we be so? I mean, how can we be so sure, right? Well, he he gives us three more reasons to close out chapter 7. Three more characteristics make Jesus' priestly role superior to all others. Number one, Jesus' Jesus's appointment by oath. Jesus' appointment by oath. Verse 20 says, It was not without an oath. You see, all the former priests became priests simply by who your daddy was. Right? D- did you belong to Levi's tribe? God had arranged it that way under the law. Uh, All priests would would come from Levi and and Levi alone. Never was there a special oath that swore them into the kind of forever priestly order that you find later in Psalm 110. 
that oath belonged to the Messiah alone. And that becomes the point of contrast in verse 21. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. You see, no Levite could claim that for himself. The oath of Psalm 110 belonged to the Messiah alone, to a son in David's line. Jesus' priesthood is superior in that it wasn't by lineage that he entered his priesthood. He entered it by a divine oath given solely to the Messiah, who Jesus is. Now, I want us to go actually go back and read Psalm 110. Uh, so if you would turn there with me to Psalm 110. I want you to see something here that is, is really important uh, to fully appreciate uh, his, this, this priesthood that, that, that Hebrews is, is talking about. Uh, Psalm 110 is a psalm of David. And and David says, uh, beginning in verse 1, The Lord, that is Yahweh, says to my Lord, that is David's Lord, okay, which which is startling in itself, uh, at least the way Jesus reads this in the Gospels. We're seeing here that a son would come in in David's line, who would also be David's Lord, okay? Fathers don't normally call sons Lord, but, but, but the other way around. How can this be that David calls his son my Lord, right, in, in Psalm 110? That's the way Jesus is, is teaching us to read this, and Jesus reads that to be speaking about the Christ, uh, the Messiah, unlike David, God would give this unique son absolute rule. So look again at verse 1. He says, The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Now to sit at the king's right hand... Uh, was to sit in the place of honor. And when you apply that to Yahweh, it's the place of absolute honor, absolute rule. This king would rule, would reign with absolute rule, and, 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 and he would reign until his foot breaks the neck of God's every last enemy. Okay, in fact, verses 6, 5 to 7 uh, describe the nature of his victory It says, the Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. He will, in other words, he will so decimate his enemies that afterwards he will drink peacefully from a brook in his kingdom. He alone will lift up his head. And we see here, what we're seeing here, is, is, is the majesty of the greatest warrior king of all time. Uh, this is truly the lion of Judah. 
But what I find remarkable here, this king has a people who gladly serve him in verse 3. So go back to verse 3. It says, your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments, literally in the beauties of holiness. From the womb of the morning, as soon as the sun cracks the sky, in other words, the dew of your youth will be yours. This is great imagery here. As youth, they're they're full of of vigor in in their service. And like the dew on on the grass in in the mornings, they are too numerous to, to, to count. Moreover, they're all robed in the beauties of holiness. What a spectacular people this king has. But but here's here's a question. I mean, where did they come from? I mean, we know from the law that uh, that every lawbreaker deserves to die. Uh, And to be a lawbreaker is, is to be God's enemy. And everybody fits into that category. I mean, I mean, that's what the priestly system, that's why the priestly system existed to begin with. And yet this king will shatter every one of God's enemies on the day of his wrath. Now you tell me, where did this people come from? How did they get clothed in the, in the, in the beauty? How did these lawbreakers get clothed in the, in the beauties of holiness? Well, I think verse 4 answers this question. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. You see, God made them holy by making this same warrior king into a priest who secures a people for himself. You see, he has every right to crush them, but instead he represents them. He becomes their priest to save them. It's no wonder the people of verse 3 offer themselves to his service so freely and so gladly. Now let's go back to Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 13 already identified Jesus as the great warrior king of Psalm 110. But what he draws out in chapter 7 is that Jesus is also the great priest king of Psalm 110. God swore an oath that Jesus, the true son in David's line, God's very son, the son of all sons, he alone would be a priest forever. Now, To that degree that Jesus entered his priesthood by this divine oath, Jesus has become, it says, the guarantor of a better covenant. Okay, the law of Moses is the other covenant in view here. It was a good covenant for the purpose God ordained it, but that law was only in place until this oath of Psalm 110 would be realized. Okay? until the oath brought the better priests to establish the better covenant. Right? And now, uh, now chapter 8 will develop the new covenant further and, and show why it's so much better, and so we'll have to wait on that. The point here, though, is that God's oath to Jesus guarantees that everything under the new covenant will come 
true. Things like the forgiveness of your sins and a renewed relationship with God and, and the peace of the new heavens and the new earth. It's all secure for you, Christian. How secure? Well, we have God's oath backing it up, and we saw in chapter 6, verse 17, that God's oath reveals the unchangeable character of His purpose. So you've got God's oath. And uh, more than that, we have the incarnate Son, right? This, the incarnate Son of God who appeared in history and entered His priestly role just as Psalm 110 said He would so both of those things, God's oath and then its fulfillment, its historical fulfillment in Jesus guarantee that the new covenant blessings belong to us in full. That is one massive rock to, to plant your feet on when you're needing assurance. We'll talk about that more at the end. For now, let's turn to another characteristic that, that makes Jesus' priestly role superior to, to all others. Jesus' permanence by resurrection. Jesus' permanence by resurrection. Verse 23 says, The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. So there was a priest, he served, died, and then he was replaced by his son. And then that son, he served and then died, and then he was replaced by, by his son. Over and over again, they served and died and then were replaced by the next generation of, of priests. Why did that keep happening? Because sin was in their bones. You see, death is God's judgment against sin. Death keeps sinners from continuing. The old priestly order could never save because sin still had the upper hand. Not so with Jesus' priesthood. You see, yes, Jesus died as well, but, but we know the rest of the story, don't we? God raised Jesus from the dead. Death couldn't keep Jesus in the grave because Jesus had no sin. The reason he willingly died was to take our sins to the grave, not his own sins. And that was proven when God raised him up never to die again. And that has immense importance for his, his priesthood. Unlike the other priests who kept dying and then stayed dead, Jesus died and rose again. As verse 24 says, it says he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues Forever. You see, death has no hold on Jesus. If death has no hold on Jesus, then truly sin was actually dealt with. Consequently, verse 25 adds, He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through Him. That's the only people He saves. Those who draw near to God through Him. He doesn't save those who try to draw near to God by by works or, or by some ritual or by some other sacrifice or, or by some sort of meditation or by any other way besides through Jesus' priestly work. If you try to draw near to God in ways other than Jesus, you're a dead man. If you want to know God, you must take Him at His word, accept the truth about Jesus, and draw near with confidence on the basis of Jesus' priesthood alone. Now, if that's you, he saves you to the uttermost, okay? You know, some have debated whether this means here that Jesus saves us completely uh, or that Jesus saves at all times. But I'm not so sure we need to uh, choose one or the other, though. Uh, he saves fully and forever. 
right? He, he say, if, if, if he saves forever, it can't be anything but fully. And if he saves fully, it can't be anything but forever. All of this because, verse 25 says, he always lives to make intercession for them. Okay, have, have you ever heard um, Christians talk in terms of, of, of Jesus pleading his blood before the Father? That when we sin, Jesus, he, he pleads for the Father to accept us through his sacrifice, as if the Father needs some, some further convincing to, to forgive us and to accept us into his presence. That is a gross misunderstanding of Jesus' intercessory work. Not only does it pit the persons of the Godhead against one another, as if they desire, uh, are desiring different things. It also forgets that the Father was the one who gave the Son in the first place. To look at Jesus' priestly work is to see the Father's love, the Father's love displayed, the Father's acceptance of His people displayed. This view also treats Jesus' atoning work as if it wasn't complete, as if it didn't fully satisfy God's wrath. Here's the proper way to think about Jesus' intercession. Think in terms of chapter 2, verse 18, where it says, He is able to help those who are being tempted. Right? When you face temptation, he is praying for you like he did for Peter when, when he was on earth, right? What does he tell Peter? Satan demanded to, to have you, to sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you, Peter, that your faith may not fail. That's the way Jesus intercedes for us. Or how about chapter 4, verse 16, Let us draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Jesus' intercession includes helping us in times of need. Romans eight fourteen mentions Jesus interceding for us in the context of persecution and suffering and various trials that seek to separate us from the love of God. But Jesus' intercessory work, it will not let that happen. We get an example of that with Stephen in Acts 7, don't we? Where we see the vision of the Lord at the right hand of God. He is there for Peter. I mean, for, for Stephen. It's, it's far better to think of Jesus' intercessory work as applying the benefits of his finished work by the Spirit. Every grace the new covenant entails, not only did Jesus secure it once for all, but he also applies it in such a way that we enjoy its benefits. We, cont we continue to enjoy its benefits, that the, and, and we will continue to enjoy those benefits until we see God face to face. That's huge for a letter that's seeking to encourage Christians to persevere. I mean, he's, he's telling them, look, you're high priest. He always... In what you're going through right now, He always lives to intercede for you. He will not fail you. How do we know? His resurrection and ascension to God's right hand. 
And then one more characteristic that makes Jesus' priestly role superior to all others, Jesus' perfection by obedience. His perfection by obedience, verse 26 in the ESV has, for it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest. Uh, the, the Christian standard version um, makes the point clearer. It says, for, for this is the kind of high priest we need. Okay, we need a fitting, we need a fitting sacrifice for a terrible problem that we have, which is namely sin. That's what the priesthood exposed, didn't it? You see, sin had to be dealt with before anyone could approach God. The old priestly order could never actually deal with that, though. It could expose the sin problem. It could even picture how the problem needed resolution. But there was no, really no way for the old priest to make the fitting sacrifice. And why was that? Because the sin that so plagued the people also plagued the priests. We need a priest who is perfect in every way. We need a priest to offer an unblemished sacrifice to cover all our sins. We needed a priest who didn't need to sacrifice himself. Only that kind of priest can meet our greatest need. And Hebrews is saying that's what we find in Jesus. Verse 26 says, He is holy. He is innocent. He is unstained. Jesus is free from all evil in His person and character. Pontius Pilate got it right. I find no guilt in this man. Jesus had no actual sin. He did nothing wrong and everything right. And Jesus had no inherent sin. And that makes him separate from sinners, it goes on to say. Now, some will take this to mean that Jesus is presently, he's separated from sinners in the sense that he's exalted to heaven and we are are, are here in a spatial sense. Uh, But the ideas expressed here seem also to be, uh, to, to match or to parallel what he's already covered in in chapter 4, verses 15 to 16. And there, too, we find this this alternation between Jesus' exaltation to heaven alongside what separates Jesus from all others, and that is he is without sin. So that's why he goes on to say in verse 27 that he has no need, like those other high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people. You see, the old priest had to, sacrifice, had to offer sacrifices daily, meaning, meaning one of the, one of the, the sacrifices, uh, I mean, meaning none of the sacrifices ever really truly forgave uh, sins. Moreover, the priests themselves were sinners. (laughs) They needed a a sacrifice for their own sins. You see, but Jesus had no sin. He didn't need a sacrifice for sin. You see, He makes a different kind of offering. It is a once-for-all kind of offering, and it is the offering of Himself, since He is the unblemished one. It would never have to be done again because it was perfect. It accomplished salvation in full for his people. It says, for the law appoints men in their weakness, uh, and, and, and it's referring to their moral weakness. If you go back and look at chapter 4, but, I mean chapter 5, but, but the word of the oath, it says, which came later than the law, appoints a son, a son who had no moral weakness, right? 
That son who has been made perfect forever. Now we've discussed this before in chapter 2, verse 10. And then we see it again in chapter 5, verse 9. This language of being made perfect doesn't mean that Jesus was previously lacking something morally. It has to do with Jesus' vocation, his mission to qualify as our high priest. As God the Son, Jesus lacks nothing, but as a man in his humanity, the Son had to be tested. Okay? Whatever sufferings that he endured throughout the whole of his life, those sufferings were the occasion for his obedience to be tested, to be proven. He had to experience what conforming to the Father's will is like moment by moment under the pressures of suffering, and he did it all to perfection till he came into that role. He did it all with unwavering obedience. And that's why God exalted him above the heavens and nobody else. God made Jesus a fitting, a fitting high priest for our predicament. So to summarize here, we have uh, Jesus' priesthood is superior to the old priestly order because, one, Jesus enters his office by an oath. Two, Jesus guarantees the new covenant blessings are permanent by his resurrection. And three, Jesus proves by his obedience that he is the only perfect priest to save us. Now, let me close with a few ways these truths should, should impact us. Uh, one, this whole argument about Jesus uh, Jesus' priesthood may seem rather strange to the, the modern mind, especially when dealing with, with something um, like something uh, uh, like um, one's acceptance with God, right? 